Story three of Trolley Folly by Henry Wallace Phillips. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story three The Mascot of the Greys A Baseball Game and the Subsequent Proceedings. Why, yes, said Mr. Perkins. I'll tell you all about it, if you've got the time to spare. I was managing the Greys. That was the club from the west side of the river, you know. And we thought ourselves the prettiest things that ever played baseball in Dakota. For a while. And then we had hard luck. Our fancy pitcher was an ex-soldier named Fitzben. A well-built, pale, handsome fellow, with lots of style and no heart. As long as things were coming his way, he could put up a game of baseball that would make a man forget his religion. But if they began to find him on the other side, Fitz would go to slops on the run. First base was this man Falk you was speaking about. There was a hoodoo playing second. Hindu? Yes, that's it. You've got it. He'd come a long ways to our town. Nice, pleasant little man he was, too, with a name that would have made him an overcoat and a pair of pants, and then something left for the babies. Dammer Jidelbub Jubub or words to that effect. The boys called him Jub, so it didn't matter so much about that. Mr. Perkins stopped to crook his elbow, as they say in the vernacular, and stood a while in silence, as the tears of ecstasy gathered in his eyes. "'Whoa, Jimmy,' said he, "'there ought to go a damper with that whiskey. "'It's almost too good with the full draft on. "'Blast your seltzer. Give me water. "'I like my whiskey and my water straight, just as God made them. "'Well, I was telling you about our outfit.' One of our fellows was crooked as a ram's horn. Jim Burke, that played short. Darn his buttons. He couldn't keep his hands off other people's property to save his neck. And gall, say, that man was nothing but one big gall with a thin wrapper of meat around it. One day, old Solomon, that had the clothing store, comes to me oozing trouble. Mr. Perkins, says he, there ain't nobody which takes more pleasure in the poor playing as I do. If you want ten dollar or twenty dollar for the club, why, take it. Take it. I give it without some words. But I ain't gonna stand such monkey-doodle businesses. What's the matter now, Saul? What is the matter? I tell you what is the matter. That fellow Burke, he come by the store, and he walk off with a case. A case! My God! A whole case of suspenders and collar buttons and so forth. I find him in Curly's place putting him up for the drinks. I don't want to spoil the ball playing. But that fellow ought to have been in jail. I went with him, and we hunted Brother Burke up. I read him the riot act, but he was brassy. 
Why, he give me the case, says he. Give you der case, yells old Solomon. I? Which is me? This gentleman right here? Tapping himself on the chest. I give you dot case? God, my friend, you talk like a sausage. There was no use of my trying to keep my face straight. Talking like a sausage hit me on the funny bone, and I had to holler. But as soon as I could get my face shut, I went for Burke bald-headed. I told him I'd knock fourteen different styles of doctrine in him if he didn't behave better. There's where that big, stiff falk and I came together for the first time. What have you got to do with it? says he. No harm done if he cleaned the damned Jew out entirely. Well, now mostly I hate a Jew as well as the next man, but old Saul was a free spender. He'd put up for anything that was going, and Jew or no Jew, it made me hot to hear Falk talk like that, more especially as his tone wasn't any too pleasant. Who the devil are you talking to? says I. Me or the hired man? I want you to understand I'm running this thing, partner. Little chance anybody has to forget it, he says, with a big jarring laugh. Don't you know that dirty, sneering laugh he had? Well, I was some warm. First off, I thought I would walk away and not make any trouble. Then I thought to myself, here I fought Jack Dempsey sixteen rounds the last time I appeared in the ring, and I reckon I'm not going to let any big swaggering stiff of a Dutchman get away with any such a crack as that. Those fellers didn't know about my being a profesh. I changed my name when I quit, after Dempsey licked me, and I never was much of a hand to talk. So, without any words, I drove a right-hander into Mr. Fox Adam's apple. You'll hear this and that place spoken of as a tender spot, but when you want to settle a man quick and thorough, jam him in the Adam's apple. Falk must have weighed a hundred pounds more than I did, but he went down like a load of bricks. I wasn't taking any chances with such odds and weight against me. To be sure, I had the science, but the only science I ever saw that was worth a cuss in a street fight is to hit the other man early and often, and with all the enthusiasm you can bring to bear. Falk laid on his back, very thoughtful, wondering where he was going to get his next breath of air from. Cracking the Adam's apple does a good many things at the same time. It stops your wind, gives you a pain in the head, a ringing in your ears, a cramp in the stomach, and a looseness in the joints, all at once. I realized that Mr. Falk wouldn't be in condition to do business for some time, and as I was right in the spirit of the thing, now that I'd got started, I thought I might as well head Burke up, too. I cut him on the end of his Irish nose and stood it up in the air like the stack of an old wood burner. Then I wailed him in the butt of the jaw for keeps. He fell all over Solomon, and down they went together. Don't you mind me, Mr. Perkins, says old Saul, as he scrambled after his hat 
It's all right. Does for this is vendors. Give him a few for the garter buttons. He was a funny monster, that Solomon. It broke me up, so the fight all went out of me. But I upended Burke and gave him a medicine talk. I've been too easy with you fellers, and I see it, says I. From this on, however, there won't be any complaint on that score. You'll feel like a lost heathen god in the wilderness if you try any more playing horse with me. I think that blasted stubborn Dutchman is beyond reason. Perhaps I'll have to really hurt him yet. But I think there's reason in you, and you'd better use it, unless you want me to spread you all over the fair face of nature. You see, the citizens of the town had been liberal in coming through for the ball team, and naturally they took the greatest pride in it. We were like soldiers going off to fight. Every time we went away from home to play, the town saw us off with the band and welcomed us back with the same, winner or loser. Now I was the manager, and, of course, everybody looked to me to see that things were run right. Consequently, when fellers cut up like Burke and Falk, it wasn't to be stood. Well, Burke said he'd give the matter his careful consideration. All right, see that you do, says I. Now screw your nut home and put your face in a sling till you look better. We don't want any such picture of hard times as you are on the ball field. When Falk got so he could understand language, I gave him a few passages of the strongest conversation I had on tap. He listened, to be sure, and didn't give me any slack. But it was a sullen kind of listening. Just that he was afraid to do different, that's all. I forgot to tell you that these two fellers was really hired to play ball. The superintendent of the division gave them a job in the shops, and we paid them extra. Falk, he was a painter, and I wish you could see the blue, green, and yellow ruin he made of a passenger car. The boss painter wasn't onto the game, and took the soup's talk in earnest, therefore he starts Falk out single-handed to paint the car. The boss painter was a quiet man, usually, but when he saw that work of art, he let go on some expressions that would have done credit to a steamboat rooster. More, he heaved a can of red paint on Brother Falk and swore he'd kill him too dead to skin if he dared put foot in the shop again. This boss painter was a sandy little man, even if he wasn't as big as a pint of cider, and had been leaded so many times that he shook like a quaking asp. The soup had to argue with him loud and long before he'd hear a fox coming back. Burke went into the roundhouse, where all the fellers were more or less sports, and understood the play. Not square to hire him? Well... It wasn't exactly, but the crowd across the river taught us the game. They did it first. Well, now, I'll tell you how we came by the engine. The mascot. He was an old feller, the Lord only knows how old, who used to hang around the station selling engine trinkets to the passengers. 
He had a stick with notches cut into it to tell him how old he was, but the boys used to get the stick and cut more notches when his nibs wasn't looking until Methuselah was a suckling kid alongside of that record. Me so old, huh, the engine used to say, and hand the stick to the passengers. They'd be full of interest until they counted up to four or five hundred, when they would smile in a sickly way and go on about their business, feeling that they had been taken in shameful and much regretting the quarter or whatever chicken feed it was they contributed to old bloody ripping thunder's support no bloody ripping thunder probably wasn't his name but that's what young solomon christened him young solomon was nephew to the old feller and his partner in the clothing store he was a great sport a darn decent young lad it was his idea that we needed a mascot. We sure did need something about that time. For if there was anything in Dakota that hadn't beaten us, it was only because they didn't know our address. Ike Solomon takes Rip, that's short for the aforesaid engine, into his store one day, a bent, white-haired old man, clad in a dirty blanket, moccasins and a hat that looked as though it had come off the rag heap and he works a miracle with him he wouldn't let nary one of us inside until he carried out his plans when we did go in there stood as spruce a young gent of a hundred or so as ever you see that engine had on a cheap but decent light hand-me-down suit oiled shirt and paper collar, red necktie, canvas shoes, mighty small they were, he had feet like a lady, pocket handkerchief with red borders sticking out of his pocket, cane in his hand, a white plug hat on his head, and a pair of specks on his nose. We were simply dumbfounded. That's the only word for it. The old cuss carried himself pretty well. Darn if you'd find a white man of his years that had as much style to him, and proud. Well, that don't give you any idea of it. He strutted around like a squint-eyed girl and just hooked a feller. When he started off down the street to give the folks a benefit, we had our laugh out. Into every store of the place goes Mr. Rip, walks up and down and says, Huh! after he thinks the folks have had a fair show to take in his glory. Huh, says he again, and tries next door. The whole town was worked up over it. The fellers would shake him by the hand, bowing and scraping and giving him all sorts of steers. Well, we had our mascot now, so there was no particular reason why we shouldn't try to get somebody's scalp. We sent a challenge to the Maroons, which they accepted, too quick. The game was to be played on our grounds, and with the eyes of our friends on us. You bet we meant to do our little best. But luck was against us. Our second base, the Hoodoo, had got snake bit. Rattler struck him in the right hand. He had a mighty close squeak for his life. The right field, 
Dr. Andis, the nicest gentleman that ever wore shoes, was coming down with the fever that carried him off. To crown all, just when I should have been rustling around the liveliest, I had one of my headaches, the worst I ever had. Lord, for three days I couldn't see, and then a fool of a man told me whiskey was good for it, and I took his advice. When the drink started my heart up, darn if I didn't think the top of my head was coming off. I ought to have been in bed the day of the game, but of course that wasn't to be thought of. Well, the boys were nervous, and I was sick, and though I tried my best to put a good foot forward, I'm afraid I didn't help matters any. Everybody and his grandmother turned out. The town knocked off business altogether. The weather was fine for ball, with this exception. The wind blew strong upfield. That was dead against us, though it helped their pitcher mightily, as he was weak on curves, and pitching into the wind added at least a foot to his range. With our man, Fitzben, it was different. He had a tremendous knack on curves, blamed if he couldn't almost send a ball around a tree, and the extra twist threw him off his reckoning so badly that he lost all command of the ball, and finally got so rattled now he had to put another man in, in the fifth inning. They were slaughtering us then. The score was fifteen to two. We picked up a little after that, and in the ninth it looked as if we might tie them, if we had barrels of good luck. Falk went to bat. I cautioned him to wait for his chance, but you know what a grandstand player he was. He had the gallery in his eye all the time. He was a big, fine-looking feller, in a way, but stuck on his shape beyond all reason. So, instead of taking it easy, he swipes at everything that came, keeping up a running fire of brag all the time that made everybody very tired. Just before the last ball crossed the plate, he gave the folks to understand that he was going to belt the cover off it, and the remains would land down by the river. He made a fierce pass at it, missed it by a mile, caught his toe, and waltzed off on his ear. He got a dirty fall, and everybody was glad of it. We all laughed, ha-ha, just as loud as we could. Falk got up boiling mad. He looked at us as if he'd like to eat us raw but there wasn't anyone round there he felt safe to make trouble with, until his eyes fell on old ripping thunder, sitting up straight in his new clothes and specks and plug hat and cane and laughing as fine as anybody. Then that big Dutchman did the cowardliest thing I ever saw. He walks up and smashes poor Rip in the face, just as hard as he could drive. Now laugh, you damned injun, says he. There was a riot in a minute, and I had to keep the fellers off Falk. Though the Lord knows my mind was different. The other captain refused to play the game out. 
He didn't want any truck with such people, he said. And while our boys were crying hot, we couldn't do a thing but let them go. I picked up old Rip and asked him if he was hurt. He tried to smile, although his mouth looked like an accident to a balloon where that big lubber hit him, and told me, no, no hurt. But his eyes were on Falk all the time, following every move he made. I tell you what, my son, never you hit an engine unawares, no matter how old or helpless he may seem. It ain't safe. An engine's not out of it till he's dead, and then it's just as well to be careful. I know one buck that lashed the trigger of his rifle to his arm with his dying hands and blew a hole like a railroad tunnel through a feller that tried to take his gun away from him, as well as changing the appearance of the next man behind, which was me. You can see the mark running back from my eyebrow. I'll tell you about that skirmish sometime. It was the liveliest I ever got into. Well, the engine's eyes were a little bleary from age before, but they were bright enough now. I know I thought it wouldn't be well for you, Brother Falk, if the old man gets a crack at you. But being so disgusted with the way things come out, and sick besides, I didn't pay much attention. The next day was Prairie Chicken Day. Fifteenth of August, the law's up, ain't it? I can remember the day all right, but I'm never quite sure of the date. And all of the fellers turned out in force to reduce the visible supply of chicken, me and my friend Stevens among the rest. We got a later start than most of the boys, and it must have been ten or after before we reached Macmillan's flat, where we were going to do our shooting. We drove round here and there, but we never flushed a feather. Now, Jay, says Stevens, let's cut for old man Simon's shack. There is likely to be some birds in the wheat stubble. So off we went. We were sailing down the little sharp coulee which opens on Simon Bottom when we heard a gunshot to the right, and not far off. Hello, says Stevens. There's a fellow in luck. We'll give him a lift, if he's got more than he can handle. Sounded more like a rifle to me, Steve, says I. Well, let's investigate anyhow. What the blazes is that? For just then, riz up a wild howl. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! it says. I could swear that that was the voice of that sweet gentleman, Mr. Falk, says I. Tie up and we'll creep to the top of the bank and see what's going on. If Falk's in trouble, I wouldn't miss it for anything. We made our sneak and looked down. Beneath us was a sort of big pothole, say, forty foot across. On one side was Brother Falk, his face as serious as though he was playing a rubber with the gent that always wins but stepping it high, wide, and frolicsome. Gee, what pigeon wings and didos he cut. And the reason of it sat on the other side of the pothole, watching him. Brother Ripping Thunder, with a rifle in his hand, 
enjoying himself much and smiling as good as the damaged condition of his mouth would allow huh says he that's plenty dance now stand on head i can't says falk i don't know how learn says the engine now good time falk started to make some objections but old rip raised the rifle and falk with a wild despairing cuss upended himself he was a big man as i've told you and when he keeled over he come down and so hard it jarred the earth wunks the shoney cries rip that worst i ever see got to do better or i shoot anyhow so up goes falk and down he comes and up he goes and down he comes in all kinds of shapes and styles till steve and me we had to jam our handkerchiefs in our mouths for fear we'd snort out loud and spoil the game holy suffering says steve but ain't he just everlastingly run up against the worst of it this heat we couldn't have wished no better if we tried jay well i should say that there wasn't a piece as big as a quarter on falk that wasn't black and blue when at last he seemed to get the knack of it and held himself up in a wobbly sort of way there says rip that more like business just keep feet still i'm gonna shoot heels off boots falk hollered murder old rip shook his head you make such noise i get rattled and shoot hole through foot he complained falk shut up like a clam here we go fresh says rip now don't move feet blam and the right heel zipped into space blam and away went the left one good shootin for old man says rip now you rest by and by we have some more fun you should have seen falk's face as he sat there resting with a pleasant future in his mind he wasn't happy and he showed it as soon as he got his wind he tried to bribe rip but it didn't go he promised him money and ponies and whiskey and tobacco and everything under the sun rip simply shook his head don't want says he having plenty good time now don't talk any more won't think what do next so there they sat and whenever rip looked at a place falk he looked too for he had a large interest in the matter and it was pretty medium hard to figure out what was passing through rip's head there was a mud puddle with about six inches of water and six feet of mud at the end of the pothole rip took that in very earnest huh says he you rested now no i ain't cries falk with the sweat starting out all over him i ain't rested a little bit now just wait a minute honest i'm all played out no ask question tell you about it i say rested you rested answers rip in a tone of voice that wasn't to be argued with 
Falk knuckled. For God's sake, what's it going to be now? He asked. You fish, says Rip. Plenty damn big fat fish, you. He pointed to the puddle. Now swim. I may have mentioned that Falk was stuck on his appearance. Well, he was. Powerful. So, when it came to wallowing around in a mud puddle with his brand new hunting clothes on, he beefed for fair. Moses, how he cussed. Then old Rip raised the rifle again, and there was a bad light in his old eyes. I can't give you no idea of the satisfaction he expressed as he simply repeated the one word, swim. Brother Falk ground his teeth till the slivers flew. Rip moved his forefinger. That was enough. Into the mud, kersock, goes Falk, and the slime splashed a rod around. All this time the engine had been sort of quiet and sneering, but now he entered into the spirit of the thing. He capered like a schoolboy. Leela ushda, he hollered. Swim, fish. Kick, fat fish, kick. Make hand go. Make head go. Make foot go. Whoopee. Chante mito, lila, ushteda. Then he took the spanking falk with the butt of the rifle. It was a animated scene, as the poet says. You don't often get a chance to see a 220-pound bully lying on his stomach in a mud puddle, swimming for dear life. So Steve and me made the most of it. There was Falk hooking mud like a raving maniac. Fountains and geysers and water spouts of mud. While Rip pranced around him, war-whooping and yelling, and laying it on to him with the rifle butt until each crack sounded like a pistol shot. It seldom falls to the lot of man or boy to get such a thorough, heartfelt, soul-searching spanking as that ugly Dutchman received. My, I could feel every swat clear down to my toes, and there isn't a shadow of a doubt in my mind that Falk did too. And that engine looked so comical, flying around in his high hat and specks and new clothes and canvas shoes. It was a sight to make a horse laugh. By and by, Steve couldn't stand it, and he roared right out. That stopped the matinee. Rip looked up at us and grinned. I got openers this pot, says he, tapping the rifle. Play nice game with friend. Stand up, big fat fish. Well, we had a conniption fit when Falk made himself perpendicular. He was a sight. If there ever a man lived whose name ought to be Mud, t'was Falk. His hair was full of it. His face was gobbed with it, and drops of it fell off the end of his trickling Dutch mustache, to say nothing of them nice new clothes. Steve hollered, and I hollered, and the engine hollered. We more than hollered. We rocked on our heels and laid back our ears and screeched. Falk looking from one to the other, oozing slouch juice at every vein and wishing he had been buried young. 
At last he kind of whimpers out, Well, what are you going to do with me now? Kick a lap, says Rip. Fly. And Falk flew, like a little bird, up the side of the pothole, over the coulee, and across the prairie. Vanished. Vamoosed. Faded. Gone forever. He didn't even stop to pack his clothes. The first train out was soon enough for him. So now you say he's fallen into a bushel of money, and has a fine house, and drives his trotters in New York. Well, by gum, but this is a strange world. Why couldn't some decent man have gotten the rocks? I tell you what we ought to do. We ought to take a nice photograph of that pothole, of which the general features are impressed on his memory perfect enough not to need no label, I guess, and send it on to him with the compliments of bloody ripping thunder for him to hang as a principal ornament in his art gallery. Old Falk a millionaire. Well, wouldn't that cramp you? I've got to have something to take the taste of that out of my mouth. Yes, the same, Jimmy. With plain water on the side. Well, here's luck, young feller. Even to old Falk. End of story three. Recording by Tom Penn.